We have been looking at recognized servant leadership for the last couple of weeks, and we're going to do it this week and next week, and then I promise I'm going to let this drop for a while. Um, So I appreciate your sticking with me, especially since I haven't been telling any stories, I haven't been making you laugh, but what we're talking about is very important. You need to be paying close attention anyway, because we have an election cycle coming up. And every year when we get to the point of recognizing uh, servant leadership, that needs to be what we're doing, that we're recognizing those who are serving in the capacities with which we want to recognize them. Um, We've been looking at this particular, go ahead there, Carl. We've been looking at this particular idea. As the leadership goes, so goes the congregation. The recognized servant leaders of a congregation need to be of one mind to move the gospel forward, to stay true to scripture, and to equip each of us so that we are vibrant ministers of the gospel of Christ. Amen? That means we need to support them and listen to them and catch their fire. The whole point of us getting together here, guys, really isn't to lick wounds or to sing praises. It's to catch a fire for changing the world. That's why we come together. We come together to regroup so that we can go and do the thingy out there. The thingy is not what we do in here. It's how we live our lives out there. Amen? Amen. We are part of a movement that started in the early 1800s called the Restoration Movement or the Stone-Campbell Movement. There are some tenets that go along with that, some basic thought, basic philosophy. And even after I have been here, I've had a couple people have asked me, what is it we're about as a movement? Well, if we go back and we look at some of those first basic things that we that our movement decided, our fathers decided, we're going to see some of those aspects. One, where scripture speaks, we speak. Where the scripture is silent, we are silent. Do you hear what that says? Let's go a little bit further. Two, the church of Christ on earth is essentially, intentionally, and constitutionally one. Why are there so many divisions in the church? When the church is intended to be and is one. I will posit as our forefathers did, that the only disunity in the body of Christ is supposed to be geography, where we're located on earth. Everything else that divides us are something that men create. But the church of Christ on earth is essentially, intentionally, and constitutionally one. Here's a big one. We are not the only Christians. We seek to be Christians only, but we are not 
the only Christians. The forefathers of our movement were trying to reform the church from within. Um, Specifically, they were Presbyterians when they came over here. And the Presbyterian church wasn't interested in getting back to the Bible. They were interested in following the things that they had set up. And to put man's tradition on the same level of, of, of uh, interpretation, on the same level of, of um, authority as scripture. That's not what we're about. We're about getting back to the Bible and having the Bible as our only rule of faith and practice. So, we're talking about some differences. This next one you've probably heard. In essentials, unity. In opinions, liberty. And in all things, you may have heard charity. Charity is a translation of the word agape. But in all things, love. Love which is for the good of the other person. Which is not self-centered. No creed but Christ. No book but the Bible. No law but love. And no name but the divine. Calling Bible things by Bible names and doing Bible things in Bible ways. You see, our movement, what we've been trying to do since the early 1800s is to be as much as we can be within our culture today like the first century church. Pattering our faith and our practice from our understanding of New Testament scripture. This is why we meet on the first day of the week. For prayer and instruction in the apostles' doctrine and for the Lord's Supper. And when we see where we have veered from the model of scripture, we should humbly return to it. We have been looking at a biblical model for recognized servant leadership. We've looked at the call that's placed on the individual who comes into leadership. We've looked at their character. Now this week and next week, we're going to look at what Scripture says about how servant leaders should be recognized. All I'm going to plan to do is to read what Scripture says and be honest about what it does say and what it does not say. And I believe that if you will listen and engage this with open thought and open mind instead of being critical, I think you're going to see that the Scriptures support much of the understanding that you already have. Before we finish digesting this, you are going to wind up examining everything you've been taught about this subject. And if, you be- if, it, and if what you believe is actually true, and having done that, you individually are going to have to decide if you are willing, if need be, to humbly adjust to the word of God. Now, I've got a couple of questions for you. Go back, Carl. I got a couple of questions for you. 
Do you believe in the inerrancy of God's word? Do you believe that scripture is Holy Spirit inspired? Do you believe that God's main path for speaking to us today is through his Holy Scripture? Are you diligently seeking every day to pattern your life after the truth that is found in his holy word? If your answer is yes, then allow yourself to be open to the whole counsel of God. We're going to start with this. You've already seen it. Carl put it up there already. Scripture says precious little about the selection process. And what it does say should not be summarily ignored. There's really two sources within Scripture um, looking at how we recognize servant leaders within the body. Uh, Today, Luke, in Acts, we're going to read some of that. Next week, we're going to look at Paul's writing as we move into part two. In the New Testament, Jesus appointed and trained the first leaders. In fact, we call them apostles. Do you know what that word means, apostle? Do you know what it means? One sent on the authority of another. Today in our parlance, in our language, English today, it takes on the idea of an ambassador. When we have an ambassador that is at a foreign country, they are there with the authority of our country's government to speak for our government. That's kind of what the word apostle means. It's that idea, one who speaks on the authority of of another. These are specialized leaders. They were witnesses to the risen Christ. They were directly called and trained and commissioned by Lord Jesus. Even, even Judas was part of that group, part of that hand chosen group, even though he was the one who sought to line his own pockets. We know that after Jesus was crucified, Judas hanged himself. And we're we're going to talk a little bit next week about dealing with bad servant leaders. We're not going to get into that today, but we will come back to that. But when Judas hanged himself, that left a gap among the 12. And over in Acts 1, 15, Peter addresses the group of the 120 and explains the need to replace Judas. And we read there starting in verse 21. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen 
to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, a very Jewish thing. Do you understand the casting of the lot? This was actually done in order to pick which priest got to serve in the temple among the Levites. And the idea was they would throw the lot, but God controlled where it landed. So what did they do? They gave it over to God. They cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias and he was added to the 11 apostles. Now there are several things that we see here that are specific requirements to be an apostle. The first one is they had to be known, they had to have known John, right? The implication probably is that they were a disciple of John, but they at least had to know John's ministry and know who he was. They also had to be a disciple of Christ, okay? All throughout his earthly ministry. In other words, they had to study at the feet of the master and to be tested as those that were apostles were. And three, they must have seen the resurrected Lord. They had to have been a witness to his resurrection. Now, I want you to notice the process. Peter, along with the other apostle elders, brought and explained the need to the group. Then they gave the group the opportunity to put forth men that they believed fit the need. Then they prayed... And then God made the selection, the casting of lots. Shortly after this, there was a need for additional recognized leadership. As we move into Acts 6, we read, In those days, the number of disciples was increasing. The Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait tables. Brothers, choose seven men among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, who was a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. I can't hardly read this without looking at that last sentence. I know I'm getting off subject. But we have evidence that after the resurrection, many of those that opposed Christ believed. I like that. 
Okay, the requirements are simple, but they're profound when you stop to think about it. In fact, the requirement that they be full of the Holy Spirit is mentioned twice. It's mentioned in verse 3 and in verse 5, that they have wisdom and full of faith. What is not stated is that they had to have a heart for people. Why is that not stated? Because the group knows these men. The proposal was pick among you men that you know that are this way. They wouldn't have known them if they were not working and already functioning in a leadership capacity because that's who they were. Follow me? Okay. It's interesting also that we only know about two of these guys. Which two? Stephen and and Philip. We don't know anything about the other two. And what is it we know about Stephen and Philip? What we know is they moved the gospel forward. What we read about is not their task, the task that was given to them. But what we do here is their heart for Jesus. And their heart for preaching the gospel and for reaching out and bringing others to Jesus. Friends, everything that we do should be about Jesus. We don't need gardeners. We need committed Christ followers that understand that first impressions when people, guests, come onto this property can affect their lives for Jesus. We don't need babysitters. What we need are people willing to minister to young families by watching kids so that the parents for at least one hour a week have the opportunity to put their minds and their eyes on their relationship with Jesus without being worried about their other responsibilities. The nursery is a ministry to parents, not to kids. We don't need casseroles for funerals. What we need are people who are willing to minister to people who are hurting and have an immediate need for Jesus and want to put his love on a plate. Are you following me? Are you with me? Okay. Now I have to admit that's, um, that's probably getting into a totally different series. <laughs> But what I'm saying is, is deacons, the word diakonos, it means servant, it means minister, okay? We need deacons that have a heart for Jesus, that are willing to do things that will allow people to see Jesus. Amen? Amen. Notice the process here in Acts 6. They recognize the need. And by the way, if you look very clearly, carefully, it doesn't say 
that somebody brought and complained to the elders, to the apostles about the need. What it said was, is they recognized the need was there. And the apostles were proactive about trying to figure out how to solve the need. And they brought it the need and explained it to the group. And then they gave the group the opportunity to put forth men they believed fit that need. And then they prayed over them. And then they released them to go do their thing. Neither Acts 1 nor Acts 6 talks about the nuts and bolts about how the selection process was done. What we do know is that there was some kind of vetting process. And it included what they already knew about that individual over time. Some kind of vetting process was utilized in order to be certain that the right kind of men were brought into recognized servant leadership. So we can come to the conclusion that Deacons were men of known character, faith, and lordship. How was that determined? I give you three words. Do you know what they are? I don't know. Scripture doesn't say. Throughout the generations, this scripture here, Acts 6, has been used by a lot of Christians as as a model for both elder and deacon selection. Yet, if we are going to rightly divide scripture, we must posit that elder selection is not in view here. I know that's not what I heard growing up. And I don't know about you because I didn't grow up here. But I know that's not what I heard growing up. And to be honest with you, I find that thought just a little bit offensive and unnerving. Yet, as we seek intellectual and scriptural honesty, we cannot get around the fact that this, Act 6, is speaking solely about deacon Selection. Friends, we need to be honest about what Scripture says and what it does not say. And be humble enough to adjust back to it when we realize that we have strayed from it. Now, don't get distracted. Don't stop listening, okay? Uh, There's more. There's a lot we've got to examine before we draw any global conclusions. We say that The Bible is our only rule of faith and practice. So let's openly and prayerfully let the Holy Spirit speak to us through it. The next place where we read about elder selection is Acts 14. Now in Acts 14, Paul is on his second missionary journey. Go back one if you would just a second. Uh, Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's in Asia Minor. We read that he goes to Cyprus and then Perga and then Pisidian Antioch, Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and has success in planting congregations, though 
also experiencing persecution. And in fact, those that were resistant to the truth of Scripture stoned Paul outside of Derby and left him there for dead. Do you remember what Paul's response to that was? He got up and he went back into the city. Then he went back to each town where they had planted a congregation and established servant leadership. Acts 14.21, we read, They preached the good news in that city, Derby, and won a large number of disciples. By the way, this is after he was stoned and after he went back in. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging each of them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Now, I'll bet you dollars to donuts, if you have a translation there on your lap, it agrees with the NIV's rendering there in verse 1423, where it says, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for the local congregation. Now, it might say they chose elders for them. And every major English translation agrees that the context of they there is Paul and Barnabas. The two recognized apostle elders and the missionaries who established those congregations. They were the ones who brought servant leaders into recognition, recognized leadership within those congregations. Now, What was the process? I got three words for you. Do you know what they are? Y'all are learning quick. I don't know. Why? Scripture does not say. So neither Acts 1 or Acts 6 or Acts 14 talks about the nuts and bolts of how the selection process was done. Yet what is obvious is the apostle elders recognized the need for servant leadership in the congregation and they chose elders for them. Did they give the group an opportunity to put forth men that they believed fit the need? I got three words for you. I don't know. Scripture doesn't say. However, that's very logical and highly likely that they did. But scripture is silent on this. We do see the process includes prayer and fasting, which is a genuine seeking of God's guidance. You ever done that? Before you nominated somebody, you actually went to God and prayed fervently, even fasted over it before you made that nomination? And if not, why not? 
And if not, you need to be doing that in the future. Laying aside physical need to discern God's call on those under consideration. We also see that they brought into servant leadership those who were committed to the Lord. And they committed them to the Lord. The idea is they gave them over to the Lord. And trust was placed in them that God would lead through them. Okay. So far, since we're not going to finish this this week, we're going to finish it next week. Let's just stop and gather and see where we are. What do we see in Acts as the New Testament pattern for recognizing servant leadership within the body of Christ, within a local congregation? These basic elements are consistent. One, when a need arises, the congregation is made aware. Two, proven and trusted candidates are raised up from within the group and presented for consideration to the elders. Okay? Three, they are examined, they're vetted by the current leadership. Four, God's counsel is diligently sought through prayer and fasting. And five, the newly recognized servant leaders, whether elders or deacons, are presented to the congregation again with prayer and they're lifted up to God and given over to him. Go back, Carl. Go, let, go, let, given over to him for trusting God that he will lead them. I want to ask you, does any of that sound familiar? It should. Because what I have learned is that's pretty much the basic process you guys have been following. Maybe with a little emphasis on adjusting back to and taking it much more seriously as we move forward. But it's the basic process that I understand you're already using. And now, Carl, and what is biblical, we should continue to do. Amen? Amen. Okay, now next week, we will look and see what Paul has to say about dealing with those recognized servant leaders who don't serve well. And we're going to look at what Scripture says about term of service. And we're going to be talking about how you can take the next step towards waiting tables to allow the elders to pursue the ministry of the word and prayer. Because they need to be freed up to be concerned about the spiritual health of this congregation. That is their function. For them to be able to do that, we need to come alongside of them and take up the slack. Amen? Everybody benefits when that happens. 
Father God, we thank you for your word and for the instruction that comes from it. And we thank you, Father, that you give us such practical instruction of how we are to live. And that you didn't just pop up and say, everybody believe in me and go walk off. But you said, if you believe in me, you live in this way. And we thank you, Father, that you gave us your son. And we thank you for the sacrifice that he made for us. As we come into this time of decision, as we come into this this time of reflection, I pray, Father, that you will listen to our hearts, that your spirit will move among us, refresh us, admonish where necessary, and guide us in your will. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you have a decision that you need to make today, please go ahead and make it. Our Lord died on the cross for you so that you may live eternally. Would you stand and sing with me if you would?